0: Hello, I'm Derek Walker. I'm the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church, and I want to share today on the subject of the well-known novel and film, The Da Vinci Code. Perhaps you've read the novel, or perhaps you've seen the film. You've certainly heard about it. And we need to ask the question today, is it true or false? Is it fact or fable? one of the best-selling novels of all time. Fast-moving, exciting drama, but it's rather spoilt for Christians because of the attacks against Christianity that are in it. Why are we taking it so seriously? Isn't it just a novel? Well, yes, it is a novel, but it makes massive claims. In the foreword, the author Dan Brown claims that although the story is fiction, all the background material is factual. In an interview, he said, one of the many many qualities that makes the Da Vinci Code unique is the factual nature of the story. All the history, ancient documents and secret rituals in the novel are accurate, he says, as are the hidden codes revealed in Da Vinci's famous paintings. He claims, for instance, that the Priory of Zion, a European secret society founded in 1099 AD, is a real organisation. In other words, it claims to be a historical novel where a fictional story takes place against a historical background that actually happened. For instance, there are many World War II novels around where the story is fictional but the basic background is true. And Dan Brown is expecting us to read it as a historical novel and so we have a right to check if it is true or not. As one Christian leader recently said, The Da Vinci Code is a great page turner, an enjoyable thriller. Why preach on a novel? Because Dan Brown makes many claims about history and theology which he has said are true. The trouble is they're not true. But many people outside and even inside the church believe him. He's claiming that it's all basically true. And so we must check this out to see if it's true. Just imagine if you read a World War II novel, but instead of the Allies winning, Hitler wins the war you'd have a problem with that, wouldn't you? Especially if it claimed in the introduction that all the background information is accurate. So these claims are very serious. In fact, they amount to a denial of the truth of the Bible. Well, we wouldn't expect people to take that seriously, would we? But the amazing thing is great numbers of people who read this actually believe it without even checking if it's true or not. And this is the big surprise. This is the mystery. It's actually an example of what's called postmodernism which says, well, if it feels good to me, it must be true. In the modern world, people are not so influenced by evidence and reason, but rather sensation and feeling if it's true. Since Dan Brown's so-called truth is set in an exciting novel, these people's defences are down, and they believe it more easily. But we have to ask, why do people who are so sceptical against the claims of Christianity, claims that are actually based on solid historical evidence, why they can read a novel and swallow it whole without any discrimination and just assume it's all true. I wonder why? Well, we'll talk about that later on. But first of all, let me summarize the story for you just in case you're not familiar with it. Robert Langdon, a Harvard professor and a symbologist is in Paris. He's called to the Louvre Museum where the elderly curator has just been found murdered. Near the body, the police have found baffling cipher codes. And solving this riddle, he's amazed to find one clue leads to another, and he goes on the trail of this clues involving da Vinci's paintings. He works together with a, a beautiful and gifted French cryptologist called Sophie, and she is the granddaughter of the murdered curator. They discover that he's the head of a mysterious society called the Priory of Zion, whose members included Isaac Newton and... You guessed it, Leonardo da Vinci. His job was to protect a great secret, the priory's most sacred trust, the truth about the Holy Grail. And so together our heroes go on a hunt to discover the truth about the Holy Grail. Well, you might have thought that the Holy Grail was a chalice that was used by Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, but no, apparently this is just a metaphor of the real Holy Grail, the true container of Christ's blood. Down the centuries, the Priory has kept and protected this secret about the Holy Grail and where it is, knowing that the Catholic Church wants this knowledge destroyed. Well, what kind of claims does this book make? First of all, it claims that the Holy Grail, the container of Jesus' blood, is not the cup. It's not a cup. It's actually Mary Magdalene. And the royal bloodline descended from her union with Jesus. Yes, the book claims that Jesus and Mary were married and they had a daughter named Sarah. And after the crucifixion, she went to France with a child. And the royal bloodline then continued in France, joining with the royal family in France, and it even continues to this day. And the centerpiece of the book is the claim that their secret society called the Priory of Zion was formed in 1099 to guard this secret in the face of the church's attempts to destroy it and make sure it never gets out. It was established, you see, to protect the bloodline of Jesus and Mary. And the book claims that there are even historical records that were found in the French libraries that prove this claim to be true. Well, these are some of the claims. Are they fact or are they fable? The bigger the claim, the more we should investigate to see if they're really true, rather than just believe it, because a a novelist tells us that it's true. So why do people just drink it all in, I wonder? That's the big mystery. Well, let's discuss these claims, shall we? What about the Holy Grail? The interesting thing is that the Catholic Church loves relics, and uh, things like splinters from the cross and so on. But there was no mention of the Holy Grail in Church history until about 1000 AD when somebody wrote a novel. Yes, just like the Brown Dan Brown novel of its time. It was about the search for the Holy Grail. And it became popular, and from that time on there was this legend about the Holy Grail. But this only started a thousand years after Christ. The Dan Brown mo- novel comes along, and it puts a twist to this legend. And it says this the Holy Grail is not really a cup. No, the cup used at the last symbol, supper, it's just a symbol of the real container of Jesus' blood, which is Mary and her offspring. And by using a play on the words holy grail in French, which is sang graal, that can be changed to song rayal, which means royal blood. And by this change of wording, they try and justify this. But actually this is just repeating an error made by some later medieval writers. Well, All this is actually a very recent claim, which first appeared in a 1982 book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. The writers of this book actually tried to take Dan Brown to court for stealing their ideas. And they tried to stop uh, the film being released because he got his theories from them. But their case failed because you can't copyright ideas, of course. These writers of of strange theories that no historian ever took seriously are actually the so-called historians that Dan Brown claims supports his views. Well, one of the central revelations of this book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that's repeated in the, in the Da Vinci Code, is about the Priory of Zion. According to the Da Vinci Code, it's one of the oldest secret societies to guard the secret of the Holy Grail. And uh, it was started in 1099, when the Knights Templar discovered the long-lost documents beneath Solomon's Temple in in Jerusalem. Leonardo da Vinci was apparently one of the grandmasters of this society. But the only problem is, it's all a hoax. It's all based on forgeries. And this is knowledge in the public domain. It's scandalous that this book claims to be based on truth. The authors of Holy Blood, Holy Grail relied on documents provided to them by Pierre Plantard, who spent time in jail for fraud in 1953. Plantard and three others started a little social club in 1956 called the Priory of Zion, naming it after a nearby mountain. The club dissolved the next year, but Plantard held on to the name, and throughout the 60s and 70s he created a series of documents proving the existence of a bloodline through the kings of France to the present day, to guess who, himself, Pierre Plantard. (laughs) The book claims that this bloodline originally descended from Mary, Madeleine and Jesus. And in 1993, Plantard's name came up in a political scandal involving a friend of Francois Mitterrand, the French president. When called on to testify, Plantard, under oath, admitted that he had made up the whole thing. These documents have all been proven to be a hoax. And yet, the whole book has been based on this. It's a scandal. Well, is there evidence in the Gospels that Jesus was ever married? If you've read them, you know that's nonsense. The scripture would surely have told us something that was so important. The argument given is that he was a Jewish rabbi, and therefore he had to be married. But that's just plain wrong. In fact, John the Baptist, the Essenes, many of the Jewish teachers weren't married. And Jesus himself taught that some men, because of their special vocation in life, should be single. And surely that was the case with Jesus. And if he was married, so what? Would that have been a sin? No. But the fact is, he wasn't married. And soon, though, Jesus will be married. In fact, if you're a true believer, you're betrothed to him. He's saving himself for his bride, the true church. Soon he'll be coming again to fetch his bride to himself in the rapture, and he'll take us to be with him forever. Well, what about Leonardo's painting, The Last Supper? Brown claims that he drew his secret knowledge in coded form in this painting. For example, there's no chalice on the table. Everyone's got their own little cup, but the chalice is missing. Why? Brown says. Ah, the chalice is Mary Madeleine herself, and she is in the painting. But if you look at all the paintings of The Last Supper from that time, you'll see that uh, over a third of them have no chalice. So it's quite normal not to show a chalice. Ah, but apparently you can see the letters M and V in the painting. Well, you can play these kind of games with any painting with enough imagination. Well, we must admit, though, that the person in the place of the Apostle John is rather uh, effeminate in his looks. And so Dan says this is really... Mary Magdalene. So Leonardo shows Jesus sitting next to his wife. What should we say to that? Well, first of all, in the paintings of that time, John, who was the youngest of the apostles, is generally drawn as a good-looking young man, fairly effeminate. And really, you have to look at the picture of John the Baptist of Leonardo. This is a macho and a rough prophet, but Leonardo's John the Baptist is a pretty boy. Why? Well, I think Leonardo had a fondness, you might say, for effeminate young men. But the decisive point, actually, is in Leonardo's pictures, his sketches of the Last Supper, he always identifies that figure as John and not Mary. Well, if it's not John, then where is John in the picture? Surely he should be in the picture. I hope you can see that this is all just a hill of beans. By the way, the quotes from Leonardo da Vinci in the book, which were made to sound as if they were attacks on the church, were actually spoken against the superstitions of the alchemists. Even in the Gnostic Gospels, which Dan Brown is so fond of, there is no actual evidence that Jesus was married, married to Mary Magdalene, despite the book's claims. What about these Gnostic Gospels? They're a collection of anonymous writings by a religious sect called the Gnostics, written about two or 300 years after Christ. So their information isn't about eyewitness testimony anyway. They're certainly not the earliest and reliable sources for Jesus Christ. They come hundreds of years after the four Gospels we know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And uh, these were based on eyewitness testimony and we have great manuscript evidence going back to the first century for these Gospels. What these Gnostics did though is they blended some Christian ideas with their Gnostic spirituality and they put words into Jesus' mouth to fit with their Gnostic teaching. Anyway, these Gnostic Gospels don't teach what Dan Brown actually says. They say nothing about Jesus and Mary being married. One quote comes from the Gospel of Philip in the, in the, the Da Vinci book, and uh, let's give you that. It says, And the companion of the Saviour is Mary Madeleine. Now, he makes a big deal of this word, the companion. Brown says, This is the word of someone who's married in Aramaic. Well, this is nonsense. Because the Gospel of Philip was actually written in Ethiopian Coptic. And actually the word companion is from the Greek, which actually simply means a friend. So that's nothing. Let me finish the quote. And the companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene, and Christ loved her more than all the other disciples, and used to kiss her often on the mouth. Ah. Well, the problem is, in this manuscript, it actually just says, and he used to kiss her on the... And then it's blank. So we, didn't, we don't know what he kissed her on. In fact, the New Testament uh, says that we should kiss one another with a holy kiss. It could even simply be that he would kiss her on the cheek. Well, just remember that this was written a few hundred years after Christ, so it doesn't bear much relationship to the truth anyway. But in any case, kissing on the cheek was quite normal in those times between brothers and sisters. And then it says in the quote that the rest of the disciples were offended by this and they expressed disapproval. And they said to him, why do you love her more than us? Well, that's all there is, the, all the evidence we have in the Gnostic Gospels for Jesus and Mary being married. Well, therefore, we must dismiss the claim that Jesus and Mary were married with children. It's a fable. And the Priory of Zion and its documents, they're a hoax. You could say it's really the ultimate secret society in that it didn't even exist. Well, another claim designed especially to appeal to women is that Jesus was really a Gnostic teacher who along with the other teachers of, the, of that sort exalted the, fav- the sacred feminine, God- promoting God's goddess worship. Dan Brown claims he, Jesus shared his secret teachings with his disciple, Mary Madeline, gave us this secret knowledge about the sacred feminine, but the church rejected this teaching and changed Christianity into a masculine religion. Brown then says the church did a hatchet job on Mary, and one of the popes said she would, was a, had been a prostitute, and since then the church has been against women and against sex. And from one of the quotes from the book says this, sexual union between man and woman, through which each became spiritually whole, has been now recast as a shameful act by the church to re-educate the pagan and feminine worshipping religions and so Brown who seems to have a thing about the goddess worship as he tries to weave the sacred feminine into everything you see he claims that the church has changed this goddess oriented teaching of Jesus into a male orientated religion well this is this is ridiculous is the Bible against women Doesn't the Bible blame Eve for the fall? Well, actually, no. The Bible's much stronger against Adam. Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned. He sinned deliberately, and he bears the main responsibility. Brown says the Gnostic Gospels are pro-women. But that's not true. They're actually anti-women. Let me read you something from the Gospel of Thomas. You won't find this in the Bible, but um, get ready, ladies. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that bless you, ladies? That's Gnostic thinking, you see. Plants on the lowest level, then animals, then women, and then the next step towards godhood is to be a man. So, ladies, you've got to evolve into manhood. Please don't. That actually is what the Gnostic, Gnostics believed. In the dialogue of the Savior, it says, the Lord said, Pray in the place where there is no woman. Destroy the works of femaleness. The works of femaleness will dissolve and be destroyed in this place. Wow. You see, the Gnostic Gospels were, were never part of Christianity. From the beginning, you have Christianity, you have the Gnostics, growing together. And the church was in spiritual warfare with Gnosticism from the very beginning. And the whole idea that the church was originally Gnostic and somehow got changed in, in over the few, first few hundred years is, has no basis, in fact. What about sex? Is the Bible for sex or against it? Well, read the Song of Solomon. God made sex and he called it good. A fire, it's like a fire. A fire's is good, isn't it? It brings you warmth. But you wouldn't just start a fire in the middle of your lounge, would you? Because it's, it's dangerous, it's powerful. It can just burn your whole house down. And so sex is wonderful in the context for which God designed it for. But out of that context, it's capable of destroying your life. And the context for sex is the marriage covenant. Within that, it's wonderful. It's Christianity against women. Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus elevated women. He went up against the culture of his time, and which was putting women in a lower position. And Jesus changed that. He honored women. And in particular, he honored Mary Madeline. The apostles also taught men and women as equal before God. But we do have to admit at this time that sometimes the church has got it wrong, hasn't given women opportunity for ministry as, as it should. But that doesn't come from the New Testament. Now you might be thinking of some things that Paul said that seems to contradict that, but in fact he's been misunderstood. In two weeks' time I'm going to do a special message on should women be silent in church? You'll be interested to see what Paul really teaches. In fact, the New Testament elevates womanhood. Did the church do a put-down job on Mary Magdalene? Actually, if you read the Gospels, you see that she comes out as one of the greatest disciples. She was the closest to Jesus. She was there at the cross the whole time. Who, who witnessed the resurrection first? It was Mary Madeleine. She was there. She is honored tremendously. And in the resurrection, he appears to Mary first. She's the first witness to the resurrection. She's the first evangelist. She's the apostle to the apostles. Yes, most unusual in this male orientated society that was at that time but God chose Mary to be the first witness why because he's honoring elevating her and through her women what was her message was it we need to worship the sacred feminine goddess no it was Jesus is risen from the dead I saw him crucified I saw him buried and I've seen him risen from the dead and he's Lord of all and you need to put all your trust in him well, what about the Pope who said she was a prostitute? Well, this was no conspiracy. Actually, this happened in uh, AD 700. He was preaching a sermon, and he noticed in Luke 7, a prostitute gets saved. And then in Luke 8, we're introduced to Mary Madeleine. So he put the two things together and said, look how Jesus transforms lives. He's probably got that wrong, but it wasn't an attack on her. It was showing her glorious transformation. What about Peter? We see a lot of bad stuff about Peter, he, how he denied the Lord. Was that an attack on Peter? We learn about Paul, what a great apostle, but he was, an, he was a persecutor, a murderer of the early church. And yet, the Bible's honest about him. Was that an attack? No. And so what if Mary Madeleine was a prostitute? That's not the point. It, the point is, what did she become? And the New Testament's positive about her. You see, there's no put-down job on Mary. She looks good because she let God change her life. And so let me say this in conclusion. Why do you think people have been so willing to believe this book? Why are people so gullible about it? That's the greatest mystery. Yes, it's an exciting book. People love a conspiracy theory. They're suspicious of big organizations like the Catholic Church covering things up, you know, and so it plays into that sense. But the truth is even more exciting than this fable. The novel might be exciting, but the truth is more exciting that God loves us so much that he became a man. He took upon himself human flesh and he died on the cross for our sins to give us eternal life. And he rose from the dead three days later to demonstrate his victory and his power to transform our lives and do miracles for us. That's far more exciting. Hallelujah. Why do people find it so hard to accept that? I believe the bottom reason is this. The Da Vinci Code is an attack on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, if Jesus is the Son of God, and if he did die on the cross, and if he did rise from the dead, what does it mean to you? It means now God is speaking to you through the Gospels, and you are responsible to respond to him. Now you've got to give your life to him. But if Jesus isn't the Son of God, that means you're off the hook. You can have your own religion. You can have your own pagan religion, you can believe your own, your own God. You can do what you want to do. And so you come across a book that claims that to give you evidence that Christianity is wrong, so you drink it all up, because it gets you off the hook. And you can you want to believe it, you see. And I think that's why people have been so quick to believe it, because it's what they want to believe. Well... That doesn't change the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He did die for our sins. He did rise from the dead. And he is Lord of all. And your eternal destiny depends on him. I wasn't a believer until I heard the gospel. But I saw the evidence for the resurrection. All the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. And I knew it was true. And I knew I had to give my life to Jesus. I want to challenge you now that Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. And I want to challenge you now to pray with me and to ask him to come into your heart. Pray this prayer. Jesus, I believe in you. You are the Son of God. I will not accept these lies about you, that you're just a man. No, you are the Son of God. And I I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. Come into my heart and forgive all my sins and give me a new life and a new start. I thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen victory is yours, Lord The victory is yours I've never been so sure, Lord The victory is yours I stand on holy ground now What do I have to fear When I know the victory is yours Oh, I was in the darkness I just could not see how I could be saved by the cross of Calvary I didn't know what freedom
1: that awaited
0: me Until my Jesus set me free Oh, I just wanna tell the world what God has done for me The day that I come, save me Lord, was the day